You've heard of people with nicknames like the Wolf of Wall Street or Tony the Big Tuna Accardo, but you've probably never heard of the Donald Trump of the art world. If you have, you'll know who my guest is today. It's Stefan Simkowitz. I've known Stefan for almost five years and have watched his career boom in that time, not from tech, investing, or real estate, but from finding undiscovered artists, making them famous, and himself rich at the same time. He's received a lot of praise for this and a fair bit of criticism too. As Art Review noted about Stefan, if the art world needed its Howard Stern, its Ari Gold, its Donald Trump, it got Simcoe, a brash, publicity-hungry, yet highly intelligent collector, advisor, dealer. Personally, when I look at who gives him the criticism, the snooty art critics of old, it appears Stefan is doing something right. But no matter what you think of him, you'll agree that he's a fascinating person to have a conversation with and is never afraid of calling things exactly how he sees them. I'd like to welcome Stefan to my show. So thanks for joining us today, Stefan. This is where, this my, is where my, you say my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Um, it's very passive. It's very sort of weird. This I'm looking at the, you. You're looking at me, and also, giant, also giant the microphone. microphone is big. So uh, let's just jump right in. And you have been called. I feel like we're on a date. Like I should look at you in the eyes or something. Um, let's romantic. pretend we're at a date and we're sitting at a bar. Okay, fine. We're being. We're at a diner. Okay. Gonna get ice cream. I can't look at you. I, I'm, I'm <clears> romantically <throat> involved, and we've only been doing this for 60 seconds. Okay, so let's start where I first read something about you, and that was when you were being called the Donald Trump of the art world. Oh, awful. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, it's interesting. I woke up one morning and I read this 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 drivel, and and it was written by this guy Christian Viveros Fawn or something. I didn't know who he was. Where where was it? It was in Artnet or Art News, and I read it, and it was so savagely sort of brutal and sort of mean-spirited that I actually felt like Donald Trump for a minute and was like, fake news, this is terrible. And it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, it was just, just awful clickbait, especially for someone like me who, who really uh, is, is not supportive and has never been of, of that presidency or, or the individual. It was, it, was, it was like reading fiction, basically. So, was, so what was the argument that said that you were the Donald Trump of the art world? And why? I mean, you've had a lot written about you over the years. I, the I, don't think that, I don't think there was an argument. I think it was like a headline. I think it was like, he's a bully and he does this. And I think it, I think it was... Um, I, I've read so many things about myself. That, you know, one of the things people say to me when they meet me is they're like, you're nothing like what we thought you were from reading about you. So let's just set this up for the listener who, who, uh, who hasn't read a lot about Stefan Simkowitz. <clears throat> what are some of the, the negatives that, you, that people say? Oh, everything. Come uh, on, give, uh, us, give us a few. I mean, you name it, I got it. Satan, evil. Why? Uh, opportunist. Uh, you know, I, I, I buy art. I, well, I do many things, but one of the things I do very well is I buy art very early from young artists and support them. And oftentimes those artists go on to become very successful in often short periods of time. And the value of the work that I buy or have bought has appreciated pretty substantially. And people view that as being opportunistic. Um, I view it as being helpful, as, as having a good eye of being able to see things very early when other people are not interested in buying. Uh, it, was, it was very funny. And in, in, in I have this sort of joke that in in berlin where there are a lot of young artists i'm considered to be an opportunist 
And in Africa, where I'm, where I've become quite active, I, I can now be considered a colonialist. <laughs> so as, as I move my geographic location, and what I are can, you considered in America, a businessman? In America, who knows? In, in America, I'm labeled as what this, that, I, I, you know, cultural entrepreneur. So, so one of the things that I don't understand about the art world, and my wife is an artist, uh, and I actually studied art in school before I became a journalist is what is considered art. So I, I went to your, your office, and this will, I'm sure, come back to the, the Donald Trump of the art world comment, but um, <clears throat> I visited your office, and you have lots of amazing stuff up, but then there's also some things that I don't really understand. I, there was actually, the, the thing that stood out to me, there was a, a bag of fake oranges, I believe, on the table, and then another bag of fake oranges on a t- chair, and I said, what are those? And you said, it's just a bag of fake oranges, but that is art, right? I mean, yeah, I think it's art. It's it's created by a young guy in Ohio named Tyler Mako, and you know he 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 makes sculpture, he makes painting, and I think it's just playing around with this idea of what is a bag of oranges, and when you turn a, a full bag of oranges into like a hundred sculptures of of oranges cut in half, it's kind of funny in a way. It's like so. It's so sort of. So, what does that sell for? What does a bag of oranges sell for as art? I've never sold one before. It's not they're not that easy to sell, but I, would I, I, I like them, and I like this idea of just having this like bag of oranges that's actually like this sculpture of a hundred oranges lying on the floor or lying on a very expensive Nakashima table. I think there's this. So you know, artists play with different ideas, and I think Tyler, who lives in Dayton, Ohio, where there really are very few artists. Is sort of playing with these ideas of like the 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 everyday object as as an as an object of art, and 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 by the way, I urge all of you since you're listening, if you're listening, that is, to go to my website simcoesclub.com, and you can look at pictures of the artists and see the list of artists. You can actually see what we're talking about here by googling and getting a, a bit of visual imagery in the background while, while you listen to that, Nick a lot of people pay a lot of money to advertise on this podcast you just got a, a free free url check there um okay so let's look at this a little further so you go and you find artists some coast club some coast club some coast club.com <laughs> i'm kidding uh you go and you find artists that have never been discovered. You represent a, a kid who was homeless and lived out of his car and is a painter and now yeah, is yeah, painting I, self. I, or I, I mean, artists who haven't been discovered, artists who, who have shown a lot. You know, I work with a South African artist named Cameron Platter, who I think is one of the most brilliant artists working on the continent. He's shown a lot. He's in galleries, he's in museums, he's in the Museum of Modern Art. But his career hasn't really been able to... He hasn't penetrated uh, sort of to, to, to be known by everyone for a number of reasons. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking for artists who are very talented, either overlooked, underappreciated, or artists who are just beginning. Um, I, but, but my question is, is how do you define what is art and what is a good artist? Because, you know, I, I was just, we were just walking through my house and I showed you a painting that my two-year-old did which i think is beautiful and and you could probably put that in the moma and put dean kunz's name under it and no one would know the difference and so when i think about the bag of oranges and and some of the work that that you represent and others and so on i i have a hard time kind of understanding how this is all defined and how something can sell for for millions of dollars that looks like my two-year-old did it well, not everything sells for millions of dollars. You know, there's this ex- extremity of it sells for something sell for $5,000, 3000 10000 20000 50000 
So this ex extreme kind of idea that every, every piece of art sells for a million dollars is completely incorrect. In fact, most works sell for well under 50,000 and you can build great collections for under 20,000 a work. So I, I, I think one of the pitfalls of people discussing art is this sort of art is mysterious and it shouldn't be worth a million dollars. In fact, they're great artists who've got terrific careers both institutionally and with terrific galleries you can buy for five, ten grand. And um, I think what defines artists who sell for a lot of money, there are a whole different set of parameters are at play that is almost like a, a different discussion. But going back to the drawings that your kids made, you know, I think the irony of, of, of making art as a practice is you sort of go to art school or you don't go to art school, you spend your entire life trying to make art as if you were a five-year-old. It, to, to rid yourself of these sort of things that we learn as we grow up through the world, to, to, to get back that instinctive energy, that creative kind of flow. And kids make amazing work. And everyone who's been in a school or worked with kids knows kids make great art. And I think like some of the most successful artists of the 20th century, like Jean Dubuffet and, and, and many others, even Picasso to a degree, have sort of somehow learned to channel that energy, that, that really uh, childish energy, and, and do it in a way where, where you're, you're, you're doing it as an adult, so bringing in bigger themes, bringing in sexuality, uh, death, uh, partnership, breaking up with partners, loss, happiness, joy, you know, adult <clears throat> themes, and marrying them with this sort of energy that kids have to just sort of express their creative mediums without... Fear. So when you um, there's a there's a lot of criticism <clears throat> around the art world today that says that it's become less. I mean, for some people, it's still a collection of of things that they love and art that they they seek out. But you know, with especially in the economic climate that we find ourselves in, where it has become a place just to kind of park your money if you have a lot of it. Is that something you see in your industry? Well, I think, you know, we, we, people tend to discuss the art world in, 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 in very sort of black and white terms. Like there's this art world where things sell for millions and there's this art world where people don't have an opportunity. I think th there, there is an art world of cultural production where people are engaged in conversation, dialogue with each other regionally, locally, and globally in really legitimate, interesting ways. Uh, I think that we're in a golden age of art production today. There's a lot of education, there's a lot of good materials, there's a lot of technology for art today, from 3D printing to huge advances in paint, acrylic paint and canvas and materials and shipping, transportation. And, and, and this has all created a sort of a, a, a production boon, in a sense, for artists to actually work in their media. And there are legitimate conversations around culture and art globally. However, the primary conversation that the media is, tends to adopt is the conversation of money and art. In other words, million-dollar painting, price, price, price. Why is it worth so much? And this is one of the, the, the great tragedies of, of the art world in which we, which we stand. And there certainly is this art world which most people know about and read about, which deals with how can something so trivial to make be worth so much money? And, and, and those headlines are things that most people who, who are, have, you know, are not really in the art world think about and talk about, the conspiracy of the capital and art mixed together. I don't think it's a conspiracy. 
I think it's a very simple thing. We live in an environment where there is an excess of global liquidity, a huge excess. And this excess of global liquidity has been ongoing since 2000 when we had the tech crash, further pronounced by the 2008 crash where we reinflated the economy by increasing global liquidity, lowering interest rates, and then additionally using quantitative easing to basically, you know, turn, not only turn on the host pipe, but turn on 10 host pipes. This excess global liquidity, I think, is expressing itself in many ways, very negatively, in, in, in zombie urbanism, where you have people buying massive apartments, buying houses, not living in them, using them to park their excess liquidity. Those, those, who, who, those people who have become beneficiaries of this, this excess of liquidity. And this has spilled over to the art market, where guys who've made $5 billion, $10 billion, $12 billion through privatizations in North Africa or Central Africa or Russia or the Middle East, you know, have to diversify their, their capital in assets. So, so when they do that, when, when someone who says, oh, well, I've, I've, I've bought 20 houses that no one's living in and et cetera, et cetera, uh, and I'm going to buy some art now just for just to, to, to park it. How can I don't think they I don't even think there's a relationship <clears throat> where they're buying the art for the houses. No, no, no. So they're, they're buying it to put some to, to store the, the money somewhere. They're buying right? it as stores of wealth and they buy cars as stores of wealth. And, and art is a good mobile asset. So I think this this. How, almost, how does it how does that affect the rest of the market like how you know if i don't think it has any effect on the rest of the market i think this is a violent expression of 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 capital i think it's a a violent expression of of spending i think it deals with with people's egos at at, at a very high level they're, they're sort of they're expressions that are actually irrelevant to the real conversation of culture and production that most people have but they are able to receive the headline news because your average below reader can read in Vanity Fair, you know, this guy, Mr. So-and-so from Russia bought this painting for $50 million, or this guy from Japan spent this. So it's very easy, palatable, easy to understand content for people to read. So this becomes this is the mainstream discussion of art, whereby it has absolutely no relationship whatsoever to the actual production of art in its emergent form and in its in, it, it, we're 40 years old 30 years old in in our peer groups where it actually matters so it's it's like it's somewhere up here in this isolated hole of a of, of a handful of in relative terms people sort of expressing you know what happens when you have excessive global liquidity and you know i was just recently at, at gagosian in in london they have an amazing immaculate gallery in mayfair it's one of my favorite spaces in the world and they put a remarkable show of Picasso, uh, uh, sort of bulls and and um, and uh, and and cows. It was a beautiful show, curated, one of the most elegant shows. And in the back room, they had three works in probably a two thousand square foot space by Picasso. Between those three works, it was about one hundred twenty million dollars. One sculpture was fifty, another was forty. And I'm thinking, they could never do that in L.A. They could never do it. You know, it only works in London, in a sense, because that is where the center of excessive global liquidity is sort of living. And, and I somehow think that we love Picasso, he's an important artist, etc. I think that art world deals with large amounts of capital, but is also largely irrelevant to what's actually really going on. And I think that 
So that's what, like the zero point zero zero one percent of the art world, and the rest of it is. I don't is even not think that. that I don't even think they're the art world. I, I was I was told recently that, you know, a, a very famous artist. I, I don't want to mention names, but like a gallery makes you know makes a lot of money because they sold a playground in the Middle East designed by this artist on the request of like a, a Middle Eastern princess. This is not the art market. These are sort of radical expressions of big expenditure, like $3 million for a playground by so-and-so. $3 million will buy you 300 artworks of very good young artists who are engaged institutionally, are in the global conversation of making art. And I'm very interested in sort of balancing this equation by, 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 by providing a, a, a different viewpoint to actually support these structures that are under attack by, by not, not, not by anyone in particular, but imagine standing in a room and some guy comes with a giant fire hose and turns it on and, and points it at you. You're going to be blown off your feet. So the question is, is, is that as sort of strange with the war and culture, the capital that comes into culture is something that is good for it because it, it provides liquidity and money to grow galleries and do materials. But this money isn't going into culture. This money is sort of going into, into assets that are trading. I really want to take that fire hose and redirect it into, into, into young, emerging contemporary art production. So <clears throat> two questions. Uh, first, um, you mentioned technology. Uh, and it seems like the tech world, Silicon Valley, has disrupted everything that we... Uh, uh, touch on a daily basis from banking to cars to I mean you just name it politics media has it disrupted the art world yet it hasn't it it it, it hasn't directly touched the art world it's disrupted it tangentially in the way that if you use google maps or ways you get to the museum quicker in the way that if you do a search for an archer, you can find it quicker. It's disrupted it as it's, I think, in, in, in a good way in that it's made art more accessible, has provided platforms for the distribution of visual content very efficiently, whether it's social media, Instagram, Facebook, it's provided an ability to send 60 megabyte files by Gmail versus versus t 10 years ago. But there's no, one that's, there's no one that's like <laughs> built a Amazon for art or something like that? or No, you know. and I, I don't think it's possible. I mean, the, the, I think the, the most interesting player in the space is Artsy, who's Carter Cleveland, who I think has done an excellent job in aggregating content, getting a lot of people to use the platform. I think the user interface is good. But I don't believe the art world can be dis disrupted in the sense that Facebook can own everything or Google can own everything. That's one of the great things about art is... It, 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 it fragments, it, it, it dies and it grows and it kind of appears in a sense like lightning. It's very random. And I think the, the, the thing one needs to do is sort of build a membrane around the world so one can sort of track where the lightning occurs and then go with the lightning. It's, I don't believe it should, I don't even believe people should try and kind of create one unifying entity for it because it, it, it will homogenize culture in the same way that film production has been homogenized by in, in, the, in, in the film studio. It's under attack for different reasons. Not, not, not What's under attack? Film studios or art? Art. Cultural production is under attack for different reasons. Well, so you say cultural production and that's something that I find really fascinating. You know, when I look back at like Van Gogh and, um, and even Picasso and you know, early famous artists, um, when you, you know, 
Eakins, people like that, when you walk through the, the New York uh, museums, these were people that were partially famous. I mean, John Singer Sargent, of course, is the ultimate of this, but they were partially famous because they had a technique. They, had, they were skilled with a brush. Um, they were able to create something that no one else could. And now I meet artists sometimes that are not even artists, that they hire people in China or somewhere else to create the thing that they well, let, come let, up with. Let, let, me, let me just go back and address the previous question about, yeah. about first of all, the tech companies are not going to, uh, the, the opportunity in art is not scalable. So they're not that interested in it. Yeah. Tech is interested in scalable world domination <clears throat> ideas. You know, you can't really scale the art business in the same way that you can scale search or mm -hmm. scale providing specific services. So that, that there's a barrier to entry in that they're going to put their resources somewhere else. On to your next question about skill. So skill is something that... It doesn't, it's not like, it doesn't seem like it's relevant skill anymore. Skill is irrelevant. Because, Why is that? Because, you know... There is a, you know, I, there are cycladic sculptures made thousands of years ago. They're beautiful. Population of the earth was 100 million. Very few people lived there. Very few people had money to subsist. So the fact that someone could actually be supported by, uh, by, by a, you know, a, a, a tribe or group of people to actually sit and make art and not hunt or not, you know, grow food is remarkable. And these objects are very valuable today, and they developed skills because there was there, there were very few people with skills. And as centuries grew on, there was very little money. Two hundred years ago, you know, paint, pigment, there were fewer people doing it. As technology of painting and acrylic paints and technology of actually the production items for art, the cost became low. There's a proliferation of skill because there's a pro proliferation of people doing it. And I think the fundamental thing about art, art is the is the is the commodity of ideas, in my opinion, expressed with a unified aesthetic. And I think successful artists are able to express the commodity of ideas, sort of the, 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 the artists sort of work with human capital in its intellectual sort of form, and create a, 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 an aesthetic practice, whether it's painting, photography, performance, drawing, or all of them bound in one, which is unified to express a certain set of ideas. And skill is very respected still today. There are artists like Adrian Genny, extremely successful painter, highly skilled. And there are also artists whose physical skill is not as important because the strength of their conceptual ideas essentially balances that out. And the fetishization of skill is something that I think you know, dies in the post-war period. Yeah, but it, die, it dies in art. But, you know, I write books, right? If I came up with a really good idea for a book, I couldn't go and find someone and say, hey, let me pay you to write my of, book idea. Of course you could. Yeah, but it's not, but it's, it's, it's going to be... You could. But, okay, but I could do that, all right? But I couldn't go and say, Nick Bilton on the cover of this book and go do interviews about this book that of I wrote. Of course you could, and people do. <clears throat> it's called ghostwriting. People do it all the time. That's absolutely incorrect. It happens every day. Well, it's... Okay, so... It's, it's they might, it might be hard to find a writer of your quality because you are a very good writer. But if I came to you today and I said, Nick, I want to write a, a book. I'm going to pay you $10 million. It's my name. There's a good chance that you'll do it. $10 million? $10 million, You'll do, do it. it. Exactly. So, so but, but it seems, but it seems it's, it's a little different in the respect of, 
yes, that exists where there are ghostwriters, right? But but a ghostwriter still gets credit, and a ghostwriter is still someone who is skilled. You know, not I, necessarily. Well, I mean, look at like um, uh, Kevin Hart's new book, and it's it's got uh, the ghostwriter's name on the front, or you know, I, I mean. From, I know a few ghostwriters, and they, they still get some sort of credit in the thing. My point is is that there are artists I know, it was one we mentioned earlier who we won't say, but uh, who, who literally, it's, a, it's like a factory, like that, it, you know, that is doing these things that are just bizarre, like a billboard with a, that has a photo of clouds on it. They never once touched a single moment of it, but yet it sits in a museum somewhere. Can I mention the artist's name? Sure. So, I mean, the, the artist we're discussing is Alex Israel. And, you know, this conversation is... And, and I was telling your, your wife that there's good art, there's bad art. It's still art. Just like Duchamp always says, there's, there's a good emotion and a bad emotion. It's still an emotion. There are many artists who are good artists, and I think Alex Israel is a good artist. I think he's probably a very good artist. I am not partial to his work. It doesn't mean it's bad. And... I, I'm more partial, and, and you can be partial to a bad artist's work because it speaks to you. There's so many different forms of creation and so many different mechanisms that you really have to sort of be, be, be very open today in, in, in sort of analyzing what's going on. And the fetishization of one guy actually making the marks has no relevance. Now, it's relevant if the guy is a painter. I work with a guy named Zachary Armstrong. Zachary is a traditional painter in the likes of Mark Grochan, Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon. Every mark he makes is his own mark. It would be unthinkable for him to have someone else making the marks. But that is because he is, in a sense, very traditionally a painter. That is his practice. Alex Israel is a conceptual artist whose practice is different. So I think, you know, I, I, I think practice... <clears throat> Is, is very important in defining what people do. And, 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 and skill is really something when you can buy skill, you know, like, it's, it, it, you know, if you look at a painting by Alex Israel, he could hire 500 different people to paint that palm tree. It's irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with the style of painting the palm tree. It's not, it's not about mark making or brush stroking. It really is just about the image and the form of the image. Whereas someone like Zachary Armstrong... It really is about mark making. It's about what's happening on the canvas. It's about the artist's hand, the expression of the artist's hand. And I think through the ages, we've had very different ideas of what an artist is. You mentioned, you know, the, the old sergeant. sergeant and the old artist. And, and if you watch the movies, we have these very romantic pictures of what those artists were, how they, uh, Rembrandt, and they, they performed very, our idea and our image of, of, of them is, is very specific. If we go to the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and then we think about how do we, how do we conceptualize an artist from the 60s, we have a specific idea what a 60s artist looked like. It's usually like Andy Warhol, like a party animal full of surrounded by celebrities. Or we go to the 80s, and we have these sort of cheesy ideas of artists and like lofts in Soho painting with loud music in the background, like played by Nick Nolte. And so, 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 so like society, sort of the large swaths of society have this idea of what they want an artist's image to be. Uh, and, and usually those are sort of false ideas. They're like ideas that the artist occupies a position where he, he has to have a moral function that, that's very specific. So what is society's version of what an artist is today in 2017? 
Um, it's a good question. You know, it's, I, I think, are we speaking like mass market, broadly speaking? No, but so let's just fast forward 10 years and you look back and you were having this conversation and you said, you know, in the 80s it was this, in the 90s it was that. I, I mean, what the, is the, it today? I, I, mean, I mean, today it's probably like an Instagram happy street artist, you know, it's like, you know, you know, running around tagging walls. It's like, you know, it's, 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 it's not very profound. Well, that, so that was my next question is, you know, getting back to this technology question is you and I both take photos, uh, love our Leicas. Um, I've been doing it for years. I never made a vocation out of it because it just was something that I did on the side as, as for fun. And, but I admire, tremendously admire photographers and, I have some friends who are photographers who have a hard time making a living now because of the Instagram world we live in, where technology has replaced their skill largely, and um, and <clears throat> they no longer are hired by you know Land Rover to do a a, a, a a photo shoot because Land Rover goes along to some influential Instagram person and says, hey, I'll give you ten grand or whatever it is to to take over my account for the day and go take a really bad photo of you looking down your feet in front of a Land Rover or something like that. Is, are these things, social media, Instagram, VCRO, all those apps and things like that, are they affecting, I don't know if you, how much you're involved in the photography world, but the, the art world in general? The, yeah, I mean, I think there's, a, there's sort of a global mass dumbing down of culture. There is a there is a you know a watering down of of everything from the modeling industry where you see you know models who couldn't get arrested 15 years ago you know on the cover of American Vogue to you know to you, you see it in every industry you see it in the art business where artists like Brainwash and Banksy you know are like known by everyone and the work is is pretty awful it's like you know art for teenagers basically. Um, uh, and in the art world, you see the same thing, but you also see, uh, you also see the ability of very good artists being able to find networks and market themselves because it's there are so many people online. That, that, you know, there's a there's a there's a huge mass of zombie dumb people, but there's also uh, an aggregation of elites and people who have been excluded from the elite elite circle globally who are sort of stitching together their own networks so you have this sort of very complex environment and i, I think i think you know talking about elitism which is something that that is interesting I, I don't think it's a problem of there's too much elitism i think that the elites have lost the idea that they have a responsibility to lead culture and they have shunned many of the more populist mechanisms and approaches to to empower culture to really compete against this sort of brainless horde of cultural dumbing down, so they've 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 neglected to use the same weapons, uh, and the gallery system and the institutional system and the art system that that I'm involved in was very late to the game in using social media and uses it in a very sort of isolating way. In fact, they very few of the gallery owners have their own personal. Instagrams, they sort of, it's the gallery speaking to you. It's the institution speaking to you. Not, not the, not, not the, the people. Yeah. And, I, and I think, and I think one of the things that, that is so important is, is what the message we are getting from the, from social media and Instagram and what you're talking about is these brands 
want to speak directly to people. They want to communicate with people's lives. They want to know what people's lives look like. And in my community, in, in my art world, I think that would be really interesting if we actually knew what were David Zwerner's political views. What did Ivan Wirth like for breakfast? What did, you know, what did these, what, what are the positions? But they're, they're sort of isolated sort of entities that are separated by this wall of high culture. And I think in order to compete and bring great elite culture, great fine art into, into the larger world where, where we can displace the crap that is being produced and marketed and bought and really educate people so they can, they can have a much more meaningful conversation with art, we really need to use the same weapons as, as they use. Um, and, and this is something that, 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 I, that I would like to see more of. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you spontaneously sent someone flowers just out of the blue? My guess is it's been a long time. But the other day, someone did this for us, and it was such a lovely surprise. Just out of the blue, a dozen white roses showed up at our house. They came from proflowers.com, and I decided I was going to do the same thing afterwards, and I sent a friend flowers just because. Proflowers is so simple to use, and they have special flowers for all different kinds of occasions for all different kinds of people. They can do birthdays, congratulations, sympathy, or my personal favorite, the just because section. They have gourmet flowers where you can buy someone a bouquet of chocolate-covered strawberries or cupcakes. If anyone listening wants to send me some of those, please don't hesitate. You can send someone plants like bonsai trees or succulents, and they ship everything in these perfect little containers to ensure the flowers stay fresh on the trip and for seven days afterwards. Pro Flowers wants to help you surprise someone for no reason at all, and to do that, they're offering listeners of Inside the Hive 20% off any of their unique summer rose bouquets or any other bouquets of $29 or more. Pro Flowers also gives you all the bloom for your buck. Get it? All the bloom for your buck? Okay, bad joke. Anyway, to get the 20% off the summer roses or any of their bouquets over $29, all you need to do is go to proflowers.com and use my code HIVE at checkout. That's H-I-V-E. That's proflowers.com and use HIVE at checkout. H-I-V-E. And if you're wondering why you should buy someone flowers, you should just do it because. So you, um, <clears throat> you sell art to people of all economic stripes uh i'm sure people that make a small amount nominal amount of money medium medium amount of money and people that make a tremendous amount of money billionaires and so on um and i've heard from folks that do what you do that uh that people in silicon valley that are worth billions um have absolutely no sense or interest in art whatsoever I think that's is that the case I, I, that you've come across. I, I, I think, largely speaking, it's true. Um, I remember sitting next to a very uh, well-known venture capitalist a couple of years ago at dinner, and I asked him to explain this to me. And he said, "Well, we're a culture of makers and doers, not thinkers." And I love philosophy, and I think philosophy is very important. I think philosophy is sort of the center piece of human existence, very important in giving us a guidepost into which direction to walk. I think this is one of the structural weaknesses of the tech world, profound weaknesses, possibly very dangerous weaknesses when we look down 100 years, 200 years, is where is the philosophical benchmark that, that Western civilization has, has, has really struggled with over centuries? And I also think that, that 
the mechanisms of the art world are not constructed in a way that they reach out to new audiences that are different. So one of the things that I experience with some of my, I, I do have clients who are in the tech world, and one of the things they fear more than anything is wealth porn. There is a culture where philanthropy is something that is very important. You're talking about the fact that they live in a what looks like a, a an inexpensive house, but there's 13 layers underneath with bowling alleys exactly. and swimming pools. And, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so, But so the perception is that they... The perception is that, yeah. So yeah. wealth porn is something. So I think the art world constructed classically is really about wealth porn. And if you look at the auctions and, you know, Miyazawa goes to auction and he's buys a $55 million basket and he breaks the record and buys a $110 million basket and he appears with Len Blavatnik at Leonardo DiCaprio's auction and they spend a lot of money and the whole world sees it and they see these sort of almost violent expressions of capital expenditure. There's almost a violence to them. They're, 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 it's very strange. They're, you can actually yeah. think of them as being, they're like Vikings macheting people <laughs> on, a, on a battlefield and they're spending money and the world's watching and they're getting the headlines. It's the opposite in Silicon Valley. And the art world is very good at creating an environment for these guys to, to spend like that in a very visible way and not very good at, at understanding. Uh, you know, it, it, it is good at selling art discreetly for reasons that are, that are, that are different, whether you, 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 you've got trusts and you, you, you have money, you, whatever, whatever the reason. But, but it's not very good at talking to these guys in Silicon Valley. And I, I've made a great effort. I go up there a lot. Does Mark Zuckerberg buy artwork? I don't know. Um, he hasn't bought artwork from me. I would expect from what I know very little, and, and it would be great uh, for him to buy artwork. Mark, if you happen to be listening, <laughs> my number's public. Um, um, but but to, go, to go back to the, the philosophy aspect of, of, of Silicon Valley, I mean, this has been one of my problems with the tech community and the tech world is that it is it's like they can't see past their own nose. You know, that statement of the fact that we are makers and not thinkers is true and sad in many respects um, because it means that they are unaware of the implications of their creations, but then in the same respect, unaware of the fact that, you know, look, one of the things about, we say what you want about hedge fund guys and, and Wall Street, but first of all, they own it. You know, we're here to make money and that's it. Here's my private jet. Here's my massive art collection. And they also, as a result of not being afraid of this wealth porn, is they there's a trickle down that, that develops, as in which leads to artists and, and so on and so forth. And in Silicon Valley, you know, it's... I, I'm not sure if I agree with that. I think, I, think the, the, I think many of the hedge fund guys have really homogenized cultural consumption <clears throat> to a degree where it's completely uninteresting. I think the tech guys are the holy grail of the art world because they don't care about homogenization. They're actually underneath profoundly interested in doing things that, that, that are dislocated. If, if, if the tech crowd can be cracked to collect, in my opinion, it's but the But they haven't the holy... collected yet. They have. They've started. They have started. Incrementally, they've started. It's just different. They're just not doing it at the same pace. And I think it's... I, I think, you know, a lot of the guys... Are very busy building businesses. They can get killed by competitors any second. And people are distracted. The art world has this expectation that you become a collector and your raison d'etre for living and being is to appear at the art fair at the VIP opening to compete for a piece from a gallery. And and I think that the art world 
can build a different structure to reach these guys. It's just a different format of communication. It's it's not the same. It's not the same thing. I think there 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 would be a lot of interest. It just has to be developed. And there are many guys who are slowly dipping their toe in. And I think it's it it. I think they really need to be sort of. There are problems with the tech world. Yes, at scale, the amount of capital that has been accumulated there is really irrelevant as as far as expenditures and art. But I I think it's very important not to alienate this group of people. It's very important to to sort of encourage them to engage and 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 use whatever mechanisms you can to make them comfortable. Many of them love Burning Man. They think Burning Man is the center of global cultural production, the most important thing in the world. I don't think so, but God bless them. It's great. It's a beginning. You know, collecting art is is a process. It's like you go to kindergarten, you go to high school, you go to college, you get a PhD, you get a master's. Any engagement in culture is a is the beginning of a conversation from which to learn as a platform. And yes, are there problems? Is Burning Man, you know, culturally that relevant? No, I don't think so. I might be wrong, but you know, it, it's it's. I think it's very important to to allow the tech world and and to and to establish mechanisms and footholds for them to come into the art world in their way, in the way that they feel comfortable. And what I've done in my business is I've sort of said I'm a very flexible structure. I, you and your wife hopefully will become clients of mine on a very moderate only if scale. You, only if I do that book for ten million dollars. Only if you do the book for ten million. But not necessarily. We, we, we can figure something out. But but I think it's very important for dealers and art dealers and distributors of cultural production to really make the suit to fit the man instead of like this off-the-rack suit that you kind of like, you go and you, you, you if you're this guy, you can get into the club. You've got to really, and that effort is a very different process to walking to a gallery and the gallery says, this is not available, this is for an institution, this is for this fancy collector who's been collecting for 30 years and they don't bother to come out. You really have to be, uh, you, you have to be on the ground, you've got to be out there, you've got to be very humble, you've got to realize that you actually have no power or impact and whatever you know or your knowledge is not relevant to these people. The key is to, is, is to sort of recruit in, in, in a religious sense someone. It, it, it's a religious sort of thing. It's like, do you have meaning in your life? Do you, do you want to do something inter- interesting? It, it, it's, is, is it's, a, the, it's a process. Is, um, it's a conversion in a sense. Is art today, uh, especially when you look at some of the people that you represent that are up and coming, is it a gamble when you buy? I mean, it's only a gamble if you buy, if you expect to make money. You know, if your expectation is I'm going to spend five grand so I can make 20, then it's a gamble. But when when you fly business class to London and you spend $4,000, is it your expectation to receive 20000 back for flying business class? No. So there's this... You've used that sales pitch before, haven't you? <laughs> I have. But, 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 but there's this ridiculous assumption that every time you spend money on art, it decorates your goddamn wall. You have stuff framed here that you frame this happiness is catching we get it from one another this beautiful little tapestry I'm looking at my mom actually made that and it's framed this frame costs money did you, so this actually cost money maybe not a little did you ever think about getting a return on that cost no no and so some things you will get a return because they'll become rare and valuable over time but I think I think I think this, this like 
easy, it's very easy for people to understand, oh, you're buying this thing that, that has no value, it doesn't do anything, it doesn't walk, it doesn't sing, the only thing it really does is decorate your wall, it should be worth more money after I buy it. But most people buy stuff and decorate their walls for little money and never think it's going to return. They go to Z Gallery and buy something for $300, they don't think they're going to make money on it. It has a decorative function. So I think, we, I think the art world has alienated people because it says, oh, it's decorative, meaning it's bad. And I think the art world has created this trap for themselves where, where they've sort of said, if it's decorative, it's bad. And decoration is, is associated with feminine and ethnic. So there, there's a whole subtext here. What do you mean by th feminine and ethnic? Feminine art is decorative. Ethnic art is decorative. So there's this whole subtext construct here of sort of marginalizing the female and the ethnic by calling it decorative. In the art world, to say an artist is decorative is like one of the grave insults. I mean, I got into a, 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 I was interviewed by the New York Times about Joseph Albers, and it was one of the great artists of the 20th century. And I said, Joseph Albers is a decorative artist. He makes good decorative work. He's a very good artist as well. He's a conceptual artist. And, and Zwerner's representative, uh, you know, um, this, this guy, David, uh, uh, I, forget it, I forget his name, but he said, it's not decorative. Joseph Albers is serious. He's not a decorative artist. So there's this like antagonism, and I think we got to break this wall down and say, you know what, it's okay, you like it, it's decorative. You don't have to understand the conceptual narrative. We'll teach that later. We'll teach you one plus one equals two today, we'll do algebra next week, and in five years we'll teach you some calculus. So it's a process, you don't have to like get it immediately. So um, <clears throat> coming to a close here, uh, one, of the, um, one of the things that usually happens in uh, fascist political climates uh, is, um, is that new forms of art are created um, and creativity kind of has this resurgence. In um, fascist environments? Well, in, in, in environments where there are politicians a la like Donald Trump. No? No. In, in, I'm sorry. In, in fascist environments, yeah. culture is stamped out. In fascist environments, the Soviets come and rip the building facades <laughs> off, off, off the buildings. In environments where there are elements of fascism and different energies, but where you still have freedom to express yourself and capital to invest, art prospers. Okay. But in true fascist in true, environments... Okay, so in the we are not instance a, that we are in today, yeah. uh, have you seen art prospering Absolutely. in new ways under Trump? I don't, I, I don't think Trump as a counterbalance to art is that interesting. I think it's quite... I think it's quite... But it's something that a lot of people have spoken about, right? Yeah, it's expected. The artist goes, Donald Trump's a bad guy. Look at this painting. It's like, it's like a trope. It's like, okay, artists against Donald Trump is bullshit. The art that, that really makes a difference is the art that doesn't need to discuss Donald Trump. It's the art when you look at it and it takes you to a different place. It, 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 it encourages a sense of balance and power and beauty that is above Donald Trump and his stupid tirades. And, and I think, like, there are artists who have made careers out of making political work, and they're very good. Andrea Bowers is a local artist here, I think one of the best artists working. Her entire career has been about politics. It's been about marginalization during the Obama era, during the Trump era, during every era. So her practice is whatever is going on, that's what her practice is about, because there will always be marginalization. There will always be, there will always be fascism, no, no, no matter who's in power. But I think for artists who are like suddenly like, oh, great, Trump is this trope that we can make art and be relevant against, very manipulative, bad. 
art is art. Art 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 flourishes if it if it achieves its its fundamental goal, and that is the goal of the artist, which is disciplined, which is constrained, which is authentic, and which is true to the entire practice of the artist over a long period of time. So do I think Donald Trump is going to make good art prosper? No, I don't think Donald Trump is going to make anything good <laughs> prosper, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Which was a different tune than you were singing a few months ago, but we'll... Uh... No, that's not true. I, 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 you know, like, like, I'm a very practical guy. Oh, but come I, on, I when like Trump to... first... When I saw you at a coffee shop right after the election and you were like, I think it's going to be great. I don't think... I was hoping it's going to be great. He won. I voted for Hillary Clinton. He won. But, you know, good things come out of it. We got rid of... The entire apparatus of the Clintons, 30,000 people, gone. And by the time Trump is gone and torn apart in a thousand pieces, the Republican Party will be decimated. And it's great. So we can sort of construct a new environment. And we sorely need a new environment. You know, the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton put more African-Americans in prison than, than anyone in history. Yep. Created it. So, I mean, they're all essentially the same people with, with, with different f- front ends. I like Barack Obama very much. Uh, you know, I think he was, uh, I, I like him personally. I think he was a, a, an amazing, splendid individual um, and, and sorely missed. But, you know, when a guy gets voted president, you give him a chance. You watch, you see the data. And I do this with art as well. I watch, I see the data. You know, I don't like Alex Israel's work. He's a good artist. I can say that and I can say that on Vanity Fair in a podcast. You know, I think you have to look at the data. You have to analyze things fairly. You've got to have a, a neutral standpoint. Otherwise, you have sort of confirmation bias, which is a very, very dangerous thing as, as a journalist, as an art dealer, as anyone. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, tragic where we are in the world. And, you know, it will resolve itself probably you know, in a in a in a nice violent way, but you know, this <laughs> a is, nice violent way. This is this is the nature of the world. All right. So uh, one of the questions I, I ask a lot of people on this podcast um, is, if you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? So that's one. I'm asking you, the art dealer, who once supported Trump for five minutes. Don't be so judgmental. <laughs> Wait, what is it? what is it? Don't be so judgmental. Don't be so so in 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 earlier days you were, or you still are. Or? No, I think I mean judgmental but, in that just just be collect more data before you be, collect more information before you judge. Collect more data, you know. Collect, watch, listen more before you conclude. And that applies to both art and life. And life, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. What's your website again, just so we, we know? Simcoe's Club. Do I, do I have to pay it? Do you take credit cards? <clears throat> we take credit cards, okay, cash, Bitcoin, you name it. How much is a Simcoe's Club <laughs> on this podcast? Uh, thank you so much, Stefan, for taking the time to chat. Bye, guys. Thank you to my guest, Stefan Simkowitz. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Pearl Flowers. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. 